This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Fred Wellman is a graduate of West Point and Harvard Kennedy School, as well as the former executive director of the Lincoln Project, a super PAC that made some serious waves in the 2020 election cycle for its very punchy ads that targeted Republican voters with negative messages about Donald Trump. He has a lot of interesting perspectives on U.S. foreign policy, military deployments abroad, how politics drive those things, and on what's driving so many veterans to run for office. We spoke with him about all that, what's happening in Ukraine, extremism in the military, and more. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us in past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever podcast streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode on Friday featuring Olga Lautman, who's a researcher on corruption in Russia and Ukraine, as well as global organized crime. This interview was conducted by our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. How honest is the military in the way they communicate to us? And I will be blunt. We had General Mark Kirtling on a while back, and we were discussing the Afghanistan drone strike that was errant. He was implying that without the New York Times investigative reporting, we may have not heard about it until 10, 20 years later. So from your experience, when you're watching maybe the news, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News on the Ukraine stuff, how big of a grain of salt do you take? Well, that's a tricky question. I mean, I think for me, I became a public affairs officer because General Petraeus thought I did a good job. So I ended up on TV when we were in Iraq the first time and I made the anchor cry on CNN one day telling her a story about the Iraqis I was working with. I was conducting civil affairs in northern Iraq, helping build schools and villages. And so I became spokesman and they train us. They train the spokesman to be always honest. They train them to be, you know, what they call maximum information, minimum delay. In other words, our goal is to get information to the American people as fast as possible. But you get to those higher levels and, and politics does intervene. And I saw it myself when I served. I think the greatest example I saw as a young officer was like the Pat Tillman episode, right? That was sort of covered up. I mean, when they figured it out very quickly, they sort of let the truth get blurry. And that blew up in their face years later. And, and I became obsessed with it. When I had, I actually had a senior officer in my command in Iraq commit suicide. And, and I was deathly afraid that the same sort of narrative would occur where it was covered up. And I was very direct with the casualty assistance officer at his base. And they, look, you must tell the family he committed suicide. Well, we got to do an investigation. We know he was found in a locked room with his service weapon in his hand and a bullet through his head. There was no doubt that he committed suicide. <laughs> and so, what you do see, though, is is sort of a there's this hesitancy in the military to tell everything, much less than lying per se. I think what you see is one a factor of very very tough information to find. Right, there's a lot of classified things that go on. That drone strike is a perfect example. The information, the intelligence that led to the strike was probably classified all along. So how do you release information that's highly classified and do it in an unclassified way? Throw on top of that just the blurriness of war. Well, which drone strike was it? Do we know it was that one? I mean, it's war is very complicated. Fred, I've got a question for you about yeah. how you served in Desert Storm. Of course, we had this situation where the U.S. was kind of in its unipolar moment and two relatively small countries got in a war. We had one larger country trying to annex the other, invade the other. 
And the U.S. responded by intervening with military force. And now we're in a situation 30 years later where the status of the U.S. and the global order seems very different. And especially after 2003, there's so much reluctance to even consider using military force in a situation like this one. I don't mean this as a direct comparison to Russia. We're talking about a nuclear power. I'm not suggesting that Russia invading Ukraine is like Iraq invading Kuwait. But what if something like that happened today? Let's say Myanmar invaded Malaysia or someone like Saddam invaded Kuwait. Do you think that Desert Storm could happen today? Do you think the United States would consider actually militarily intervening in a similar situation? I think with the Biden administration, especially, possibly. I mean, we would do it as a coalition. The problem is we have kind of gotten burned. We didn't necessarily go it alone in Afghanistan. We definitely went it pretty close to alone in Iraq in 2003, right? It's kind of like post-Vietnam, where we were hesitant about any kind of war. That was the thing about Desert Storm, we used to say that it broke the post-Vietnam malaise of the military, where there was such hesitancy. If you remember, Colin Powell was the Powell Doctrine, which is if we're going to intervene, we're going to intervene and win. You know, there's no question about it. I think you may see the same sort of thing now after Iraq and Afghanistan, after 20 years of the global war on terror. I mean, I don't know if there's an appetite in America for yet another war, right? So there is going to be this hesitancy amongst the leadership to do that. There's the logistic part of it. You got to realize we do not have the military we had in 1989, 1990. That was the Cold War military. I mean, we sent 600,000 troops to the Middle East to fight Desert Storm. Um, When we did OIF, the Iraq invasion in 2003, I think we used a third of that. And we got damn lucky, to be candid. We didn't use near the combat power that we used in in the first one. So that's the next question is, what are our capabilities? I mean, the standing army, the standing military is not nearly as as big as it was in 1989. So there are factors that the leadership and the political leadership is going to have to consider before we intervene in these things is what is our capability to actually accomplish the mission? Will we do too little? I mean, you could make the case that when we invaded Iraq in 2003, we did it much like you could almost argue that Putin watched our invasion and followed it and learned the wrong lessons. We basically did a regime takedown with minimal forces. We didn't control most of that land. It was a regime decapitation because the people didn't support Saddam. Now, if Saddam had popular support, if we had faced the kind of resistance that the Ukrainians are giving the Russians, it would have failed. I mean, there's just no way to say it wouldn't have. And you could argue that the reason we had a 20-year insurgency there is because we never had enough troops to occupy the country properly. We were spread too thin. We were all over the country. We weren't controlling every village. That was a myth. And so we didn't actually occupy Iraq to any great extent. So they were able to create an insurgency against us. So just like Ukraine, he did not send enough troops in to occupy Ukraine. To say he could occupy Ukraine is a myth. I don't know if we physically could, depending on the the adversary. I don't know if the political will is there to commit ourselves to a war. Uh, And in the end, the final factor is, and I think our friends in Russia are saying right now, you know, war once it starts, nobody knows it's going to happen. You predict, you analyze, you do balances of power, you, you try to get intelligence on what the civilians are going to do. But in the end, it's a crapshoot, guys. I mean, honestly, you go into war, you're not sure what's going to happen. Things can get funny fast. I mean, everybody forgets the march to Baghdad was interrupted by a two-day sandstorm. That kind of shut us down. I remember huddling in the middle of the desert underneath the Black Hawk, wishing that the wind would stop blowing. And you know, who could predict that, right? So you war sounds good the best laid plans but once you engage once you cross that line and things start getting blown up 
all bets are off. And I think that's what Russia is seeing now in Ukraine, right? And they had this great idea. They're going to rush in there and the people are going to collapse. And Zelensky, who's just a comedian, is going to flee the country. And the West, which is completely, you know, fighting each other. You know, Germany doesn't want to have a defense. And Biden's weak because Trump told them that. And all that was wrong. I mean, we built an international coalition. The Ukrainians have fight in them and are fighting back. And so now here we are two weeks into a war that I'm positive Putin thought would be three or four days. You talked about how in the 2003 Iraq war, the U.S. did not commit as many troops as they really needed to stabilize the country. Only 100,000 when maybe it should have been 600,000, like you said. However, in the years since then, it doesn't seem like that's the takeaway that our leaders have digested. Um, Instead, the mantra has been no boots on the ground, right? So in these situations where the U.S. has become involved in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, it's often been about supporting others, Mm -hmm. aerial, you know, the drone war in South Asia. It's been this reluctance to really commit a larger true presence that could help stabilize any of these situations. So do you think that the U.S. has been approaching these situations wrong? Do you think that they've learned the wrong lessons from 2003? Or do you think that, um, you know, the public resistance to committing troops is an important enough reason to have the kind of restraint that they've been exercising? That is the reason, right? I think the unforeseen circumstances of having, you know, when we put boots on the ground, everybody expects us to fill it. Occupying Libya is a giant operation. Occupying any country so what we try to do is we support with the strengths that we have, which is a, a very technologically advanced military that can do very precise bombing. There's things we can do that no one else can do. And then what we want to see is the people who are there on the ground, like the Kurds in Syria or the Libyan freedom fighters where they were, depending on the day, do the fighting instead of using U.S. troops and getting us bogged down into a quagmire we can't see the end of. Again, there, there just isn't an unlimited supply of American troops. Um, you know, again, I, I'll tell you one of the things I've been saying quite a bit, guys, is I don't know if you know, but the, the one thing they teach us in the military and probably everybody, and, and I was an international relations major in college, is the four tools of power in the United States. There's four tools of power. DIME, we call it D-I-M-E. Diplomacy, informational, the military, and economic. Those are the four levers of international power that are available to a country. But you can honestly say that since 9-11 especially, it almost feels like the only one we've been using is M, right? I mean, it's just military. The only, the only tool in the toolbox has been a hammer, right? And and it was just a different size hammer. So it was maybe a small hammer. It was like drones. Maybe it was a big hammer. We invaded like Iraq. Hasn't uh, the most back. used tool been uh, sanctions for the last uh, 10 years? Uh, not in a combat situation. Seeing, I don't think you've seen anything like we're seeing with Russia right now. The response to it wasn't necessarily a purely military one we built uh i mean we can sanction alone but to build an international coalition of sanctions has not been used that much i I mean that's been our approach to iran and north korea hasn't it i would agree yeah thank god uh and diplomacy that kind of we kind of went away from diplomacy a bit in this last administration we're kind of going back to diplomacy but i do think we're using at least all four pretty damn well with the ukraine situation i like seeing the full use i like dime i don't want to just see military 20 years of war is a really long time, guys. I mean, you got to remember, the global war on terror is the longest war in American history. It fought exclusively by a professional military. There was no draft. It was a vo- all-volunteer military, which typically comes from their own military. I'm the son of a World War II veteran. Um, my son joined. My son-in-law still serves. It was a long war on a very small segment of our population. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to join another war, for good and bad. 
The number of veterans in Congress has declined significantly over the last several decades. The way we can deal with some of the toxicity that we see within our politics right now is to recruit and actively support people who they were brought up and they were trained in this idea of saying, we lead regardless of the politics that surrounds us. We want to endorse Republicans and Democrats. We want to bring people from various backgrounds, but the only common thread that they have is that they are military veterans and they pledge to be able to work with the other side in order to get things done. Right now, people are very frustrated by this, this level of, 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 of not just confusion, but this level of stickiness and ugliness that our politics has, has now been able to exude. And the hope is that people who have worn the uniform and have worn the uniform with a core focus on supporting the country and its future are people that can help us break through that gridlock. So speaking of our political leaders and how they approach matters of war, you mentioned John McCain a little earlier in this conversation. Mm -hmm. He was the last veteran that's been nominated for president by either Mm -hmm. party. And that came at the end of a streak of five elections, five consecutive elections, where a non-veteran beat a veteran in a general election. And since Mm -hmm. then, neither party has even bothered nominating one. Why do you think that the U.S., which so often elected veterans, Eisenhower, in the past, George Bush has moved away from even considering veterans as candidates for president. Part of it's laws of physics. There just aren't that many of us anymore. We have to remember that generation, uh, the George H.W. Bush was a World War II vet. Most of, up until the 70s, 80s, most of those guys were World War II vets and Korea vets. We're losing right now. Actually, that's out of date. We lost most of the Korea and the World War II veterans. They're just gone. You know, when you had 25 million men under arms in that time frame, now I mean, the total number of people who served in the 20-year global war on terror, I think, is just short of 6 million total in 20 years. That's not very many when you think the the population are 330 million. So the veteran population has gone, I think, 10 years ago when I first started my – 12 years ago when I started my company, Scout Comms, I believe there was 24 million veterans in America – Last time I checked, I think we just went under 16 million veterans in America, or 14 million. So it's just descent. Less than 7% of the population are veterans. Less than 1% of the population actually serves within the military in a modern sense. The average American doesn't even know somebody who serves. I wanted to kind of take a turn to the dark side, both with GOP politics, Trump, and also veterans. And specifically, during January 6th, there were a lot of veterans that participated in this. And then taking it a little step further, you had of the 147 Republicans that voted to support the big lie, some of them were veterans. So I guess just from your perspective, you're a veteran. How does one person go from supporting the country to either trying to militarily overthrow Congress or voting to support authoritarianism? Well, wrap your head around the fact that on that day, two people died specifically, right? Brian Sicknick. And Ashley Baverick, they're both veterans. They're both Air Force veterans. So literally on both sides of the line at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, there was veterans and service members. Did you know that an actual active duty service, a Marine field grade officer, a major United States Marine Corps, um, actually held one of the doors open and let people in? He's actually serving in Quantico, Virginia. 
it's one of the reasons I started my super PAC called the, the Beer Hall Project, which is about the erasure of January 6th. And these are things we have to consider. We've been warning for years, the DOD, that there's a huge problem with a growth of extremists in the ranks. There's a growth of, I mean, I mean, hell, way back in the 80s, we were dealing with gang members, white supremacist gangs. I actually had to inspect my troops in the 1990s to look for white supremacist tattoos, which was a thing. I mean, it's probably one of the greatest disappointments is that at one point, 10% of all those arrested and, and indicted for crimes on January 6th were veterans. As I mentioned earlier in this conversation, we make up less than 7% of the population, which means there was not just a, normally the representative amount of veterans, there was more veterans than we should be uh, at that day. And that should scare everybody and it should certainly scare DOD. Positively, I think they were. I think that Secretary Austin is taking it very seriously. He's been investigating, by the way, much to the chagrin of the Republican Party who have beat him up for the woke training. But we need to understand that there are extremists in the ranks when it's rooted out, when it's identified, they need to be kicked out. But no, it's it's probably one of the greatest disappointments of my adult life, to be honest, is to see so many of my peers who have turned to misinformation and deceived by disinformation and turned even to violence against their own government. I think if we don't answer those questions, the whys and how to prevent that, we could be in very serious trouble as a nation. I don't know how I feel about the impact the Lincoln Project had, and I will sure. tell you where sure. I'm thinking, right? Uh, sure. So number on one side, I'm like, man, these ads are really uh, rough and tumble, knock them down, drag them out. I personally really enjoyed watching these ads. I sent them to all my friends. I helped them go viral. Uh, and and I'm like, well, maybe this is just getting lost in the noise and Trump derangement syndrome. But then I spoke to my next door neighbor who worked for the Trump administration relatively high up. And he said, he's from Georgia, he said that they were having an impact on yeah. the suburban voters. So I was wondering if you could give us a step back and an unvarnished take on the impact that you think the Lincoln Project had. Well, I'm biased, but <laughs> it's funny. I was at, so we gathered out in Utah, Park City. We gathered quietly in Park City for the campaign, the, at last part of the campaign. And so my good friends from West Point live out there, and they're quite progressive. And I remember them kind of going off, like, what are you doing? You know, these ads don't make any sense. You know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you're not my audience. And they go, what do you like? You're not my audience. You know, we had a thing we called the Bannon line. And Steve Bannon helped us. He did a little speech one time. He said, look, these Lincoln Project guys, they're onto something. If they can peel off, Three to four percent of Republicans who voted for Trump last time, we lose. That's all. That's that's the. We were never trying to move ten percent or thirty percent. We were never trying to move progressives. Our goal was, and the reason I did veterans, the reason we had a women's group, we had a Christian group, we had an evangelical group, um, was because we wanted to focus on these key constituencies, suburban women, to 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 at least make a few of them, just a few people who had voted for Trump either stay home or vote against them. And that's why you always talk, you saw us talking about decency versus indecency, you know, the, you know, the values. My, if you ever, I don't know if you guys probably, you probably didn't see it, maybe you did. I did now the Vinmans. Um, Rachel and Alex Vim are good friends of mine. Um, I'm very fortunate to know them. And I recruited them to do an ad with me. And if you see it, you can look it up. It's on YouTube. Um, it's called American Family is the name of the ad. I, did I wrote see that it. ad. Yeah, I wrote that ad. And I wrote it with Rachel's voice, right? Everybody knew Alex. They'd seen Alex on TV. But the real story was how Rachel Vimman, an army wife, a loyal army wife, 20 years had, had served in, you know, with her husband in Russia, had served in Ukraine, had traveled the world, had, you know, was with him, was with him, well, as a partner when he got blown up in Iraq. Um, 
and was now suddenly her family suddenly under attack, uh, getting hate letters and having cameras in their front yard, the most powerful man in the world smearing her husband and her family. So I wanted to tell that story to target suburban women. I, I made it a story where any woman who has is a mother, in a, any kind of tiger mom, would see her family being attacked by the most powerful man in the world and question that. And we got really great feedback. That was a really powerful ad with, again, suburban women, which was our target audience. And so um, we were part of a coalition. And we didn't just do ads. I think the big mistake a lot of people make is they think all we do is ads. We had we had billboards. We had media. Um, we had a Latin coalition, a Latina coalition. I'm very proud of one of the largest Latina uh, coalitions um, from groups that are heavily liberal that still worked with us uh, to partnerships with, like, well, Midas Touch. We, we actually helped um, get door knockers for the Georgia Senate runoff. I mean, those are the things we did that weren't quite as spectacular that you saw on TV. But, but again, our goal was to reach and hopefully turn some 3 to 4% of Republicans that voted for Trump the last time. Did we succeed? Our numbers, some of the numbers, the more honest numbers have said yes. Um, we've been attacked by everybody. That's okay. But I think for me, I definitely think we did. I mean, I saw a lot of people in my constituency, which is the veteran and military family group say, yeah, that's just not our values. I, I can't, I can't vote for that guy again. Um, it's just not, it doesn't share our values. Uh, and in a values driven organization like the military, that matters. Well, yeah, of course. And I mean, you can't really parse election results that accurately, right? It's, right. it's all no, guesswork it's at the end of the yeah, day. And to your point, Trump received much less of the vote than House Republicans, for example, who won back yep. seats. So I guess I want to take a step further. The theory of the case is these this negative campaigning, like you said, not necessarily to, to turn people to Democrats, maybe just make them not come out or get them so disgusted that they do uh, come and, and they vote for that candidate, you know, a very, very small percentage. I'm wondering if this type of negative campaigning for Democrats, we know it works for Republicans, but I'm wondering if this type of negative campaigning without Trump on the ballot actually works and why it might not or, or why it does work. Well, that's the question, right? I, I think you look at Virginia, um, including my former organization, I think people made the mistake of trying to Glenn, try and tie Glenn Youngkin to uh, Trump, right? That was the big thing. Ah, oh, he's just Trump in a vest. That was the big thing you heard a lot of. And people didn't buy it. Um, I think there was this desire to carry on um, the Trump discussion to another candidate who had, one, never served, never run for office before. So you, you didn't have a vote you could tie into any of that. So so that instinct to try and try Trump to tear everything try and tie Trump to everything was a mistake. I think that's a clear mistake that was made in Virginia um, to include my former organization. That, I, know, that wasn't a part of it at that time. But I would say in other places, you know, you have to tie in the end, you have to tie it to your candidate. Um, for example, let's talk Marjorie Taylor Greene and my friend Marcus Flowers. You know, Marcus is running down in Georgia, Northwest Georgia. It's an R plus, I don't know, 26 district, right? <laughs> so obviously it's impossible for him to win. But Marjorie Taylor Greene is not your typical candidate. She's not Mitch McConnell. She is a first term freshman Republican congressman who immediately was taken off all of her committees, um, has voted against almost every bill that would have benefited her her district, uh, literally every bill. She hasn't voted on it. I think she's voted for any bill that's passed, including the infrastructure bill. Um, she spends most of her time galvanizing around the country with Matt Gates and others. Is rarely in the district. Doesn't even have an office in the district. She literally closed her office, allegedly because of COVID, but has a PO box as her office in her district. I mean, that's how little she does for the district. So you could sit back and say, well, it's just, it's a, you know, she's an incumbent, it's R plus 20. I said, what chance? Well, there is a chance because, again, 
she has demonstrated that her values don't match those of her, her district. But I do urge my Democratic colleagues to, you know, not be afraid of using some edge, calling out your opponent for the truth, you know, using those hard messages. Because the thing is, no matter how great your policy is, it's useless if you don't win the election. President Trump facing new fallout this morning after the bombshell guilty plea from his former lawyer, Mark Cohen, directly implicating Trump in campaign finance felonies. Trump took that on in a brand new interview on Fox. Well, you know, I guess it's just something like high crimes and all. I don't I don't know how you can impeach somebody who's done a great job. Clearly, this topic is front and center on his mind. He was up in the middle of the night tweeting. He wrote, no collusion, rigged witch hunt at 110 this morning. For some of us, the number one reason that we oppose Trump, even more than his ignorance, his incompetence, his prejudice, <laughs> was corruption. Uh, you know, we hated the fact that he was in the business of government and politics purely as a scam to make money. And we yeah. saw a lot of this in the campaign finance sphere, how the Trump campaign would put all of the money from the campaign over into outside consultancies and then yeah. take all of that money home in fees. And yeah. A lot of us are so frustrated by the way the entire campaign finance world operates after Citizens United. And so it's when broken. we look at, you know, a lot of these outside groups, not just the Lincoln Project, but Midas Touch, oh. which you also mentioned, and, and yep. many of the other ones, you know, we see a lack of transparency in the finances. And we sometimes wonder, you know, is this a little bit of the same stuff that we're objecting to so much on the Trump side? Uh, yes. Is that something that, uh, yeah. uh, that you can speak <laughs> how, to? How, how can I say, how can I not say yes? Yes, absolutely. There's there's no question about that. Now I tell you this, you know, the Lincoln Project we faced that was one of the things. So you know, I took over as executive director uh, <laughs> the day the John's the John Weaver story came out. If you remember, on one February of last year, story came out in the New York Times about John Weaver's um, just disgusting behavior um, with with uh, young men online. That was my first day as executive director, which was awesome, right? Great first day. And it only went cascading from there. Then there were stories about our financial um, stewardship and all. So we actually did a financial stewardship report. Um, we didn't get any press for it. We actually tried to get the press to write a story about it, but they weren't interested. But we actually did uh, a super PAC, which is never done ever, uh, with an actual financial stewardship report. We laid out where the money went, where we spent it, um, who got it. We, we actually did a whole report. It's on there. It's on the Lincoln Party's website. I was very proud of that. I, I, I stewarded, I, I was oversight of that myself. Um, but that's a rare thing. You're right. Most of them, the way the rules are, you, they don't have to tell you where the money went. And it opens things like literally just now, I was uh, reading a story. I don't know if you saw the story. just came out about Sidney Powell, uh, the Kraken lawyer, how she started this Defending America PAC or whatever C4 organization. It's a 501C4, which is a dark money group that's raised like $15 million. And nobody has any idea where the money went. They're just making money hand or foot. Her and Mike Flynn, uh, allegedly, they're funding the Oath Keepers' defenses. They're, they're paying for the lawyers for the Oath Keepers. It's, it's horrifying. So I actually, even a guy who works in, the, in that world as a super PAC guy, uh, I do believe there should be more transparency. I'm here in Missouri where Peter Thiel has literally dropped 10 million, or no, Ohio. Peter Thiel dropped, what, $10 million into a pack backing um, J.D. Vance? $10 million. One guy is basically buying a candidate, buying a race. And he'll, he's going to use that money in the general, just mercilessly attack J.D. Vance's opponents. Um, while the law, 
all the campaign finance for JD, oh, $2,700 per person. What meanwhile, Peter Thiel himself is dropping $10 million and there's nothing that can stop him from doing it. I mean, it, it is a very, very broken system. Um, having said that, it's just like gerrymandering, right? It, it's, it's okay for us to be, I'm against gerrymandering. I'm against Carly, but I'm also not going to sit back and, and, and let my enemy do it, me not do it, right? That's, that's like surrender, right? And so it is important that we, as long as these rules are there, we have people who are willing to do the hard stuff on both sides of it. Otherwise, it's not an even fight. I mean, my God, the money is being raked in by the right right now. Like I said, the, just 50, I mean, think about that, $15 million for one group with no money, we have no idea where the money went. All of Trump's money that he's getting, we have no idea where it's going. He hasn't given any to any candidates. So where's the money going? At least I, the groups I know I work with, like Midas and Lincoln, they're spending on stuff. I know where Lincoln Project money is going. It went out the door to, to buy campaign ads and, and, and build them and, and, and build coalitions and pay for get-out-the-vote efforts. But yeah, no, I mean, as a guy who works in that world, I agree. It's, it's a mess. Um, it's, it's very dangerous. And that, that has changed our entire political landscape. Because, again, if you just find one sponsor who wants to buy a candidate, oh, well, here you go. Um, yeah, and, Eric Greitens. You know, I look at Eric Greitens, for God's sake. Um, uh, I mean, he, he, it, it, would, it would be crazy if he wins that Senate seat. Um, oh, but, I'm here. It's, it is crazy. There's a chance. Uh, and he'll win it with like 31% of the vote because none of the other characters want to leave. And it is a cast of freaking characters yep. from Mr. McCloskey to, to uh, Eric Schmidt, the attorney general who hasn't done anything for the attorney general, but sue schools um, to, you know, Vicki Harser, who's trying to play herself as the reasonable one. She's actually like an anti-trans, you know, Phyllis Schlafly style of, uh, of, of far right um, insanity. And Billy Long, the auctioneer. Billy Long. Oh my <laughs> God, his freaking bust. Who's <laughs> trying to destroy everybody, right? And, and none of them will drop out. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a very good chance Eric Grides will walk into the Senate nomination because it's not, this isn't a runoff state. All you got to do is get a simple majority. So he could get 31% of the vote and win the damn thing. It's it, horrifying. It, and, and I just wanted to close the campaign finance law so that people don't get mad we're attacking sure. Republicans. Rep. Omar's yeah, election campaign, according to the New York Post, helped keep her husband's political consulting firm afloat, providing nearly yeah. 80% of the company's income and spending yeah. two point, over $2.9 in the course of 2020. And folks, yeah. she is in a safe blue seat with no yep. real primary challenger. So that kind of just speaks to the campaign finance. I don't want to call it corruption. You can draw your own inferences, um, yeah. but the system that that is, that is uh, broken there. So uh, yeah. I, I was wondering, Fred, if if you're going to give us, you were a Republican. How does the Republican Party from you, you've now worked in politics for a few years, you've worked in communications for, for many more. How many. does the Republican Party save itself or should everybody just vote for Democrats? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm biased on that one. I mean, I don't know if it can save itself. I mean, there, there's been efforts to create new ones. There's been efforts to kind of return this to its more traditional conservative routes, roots, excuse me. I don't know if it's possible, guys. I mean, I, I would love to be an optimist. I mean, we need two. We need good, two strong parties. We need a, a reasonable alternative. Um, but when you see the the kind of like the kind of activity going on right now, with the Ukraine stuff, where they just refuse to give the president any support at all, or they're going to attack Putin and attack Biden. I mean, it's just um, there's just insanity on one side, and it's not normal. There's there's just this great desire for us to return to normal, like the good old days, right? We see it in the media. We see it everywhere. We even see it amongst the Biden administration. Why do you want to be normal? When one party is just not normal anymore, I don't know the answer. I'm not necessarily sure they're going to find themselves in the woods. But my view has been, and, and my colleagues at the Lincoln Project when I was there, was that the Republican Party kind of needs to be put out into the 
you know, put out the woods for a while, you know, put out in the wilderness and they must go out in the wilderness and find themselves, you know, like, uh, like the old days, right? Um, they need to go on a vision quest, figure out who the hell they are, because right now we don't have a party that should be trusted with the government. We, we just don't. When you see today, I mean, look at just today, my God, the, the anti-trans activities going on in Texas, uh, the law in Iowa that's actually trying to, or is it Iowa? Yeah, Idaho. They're trying to make it illegal even for a family to leave the state to get gender-affirming care for their transgender child. Um, in Missouri, the woman, a woman today introduced a piece of legislation just yesterday um, that if a family, if a woman gets an abortion in Illinois, that she can be sued. The whole bounty thing, ten thousand dollars sued because she killed. A, you know, she's a Missouri resident, but she went somewhere else to you know kill a baby. This kind of insanity. Um, is 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 really a march to autocracy, which is scary to talk about, but it really is. These kind of rules where using child protective services to go after families, um, the don't say gay law. I mean, you're seeing some really crazy stuff coming out of these legislatures, um, many of them super majorities, uh, that tell you, you, you we have a party that's not interested in governing all people. They're not interested in the best interest of all people. They're interested in their only constituency. And when, when a government becomes ruled by people who are only interested in their specific constituency, well, that's an autocracy. That's that's what Saddam did. Saddam took care of the Sunnis only, not the Shia and the Kurds, but just the Sunnis. Um, that's a horrifying situation. Um, I mean, say what you will about my colleagues in the Democrat Party, which I was not a member of for the majority of my life. Um, I think they usually try to at least do the best thing for all Americans. And even my Republicans used to. They try to do the best thing for most Americans. Um, I'm not necessarily sure I'm seeing the same thing anymore. So I got to tell you, I, me, just Mr. You know, Operative, thinks that I think the Republican Party needs to be put in the wilderness. We need to need vote Democrat, get the best candidates possible. We have a, have a big tent. Um, you know, here in, here in Missouri, we need whoever is the strongest candidate could be. Eric Reitens needs to run and win. Um, we need support. We need to hold our nose sometimes and, and just – they got a D, just vote for them, you know, because that's all that they're doing. They're just, they just never vote for anybody but an R. That's how Winsome Sears won the, the lieutenant governor race in, in uh, Virginia. She's nutty as hell. <laughs> I mean, just not, you know, she's just, she's just something. She's a, she's something. Uh, but they just went straight R ticket and, and all three of them got elected. So I think it's a very weird time. We are not going back to normal anytime soon. Uh, well, that's, I think, quite a unfortunate omen then to end this part of the conversation. But yeah. uh, perhaps it's a, a bit of um, uh, reality. Well, we're going to go to our audience member up here. Duke has joined the stage. We want to check to see if Duke has a question to ask. Duke, over to you, sir. Thanks, John. Thanks, Justin, for hosting the room. Fred, glad to have you here. You spoke of having to engage with the Super PACs because the other side has been doing this. And is there any concern from your end with this constant financial arms race with the current composition of the Supreme Court where there's not much hope to change Citizens United? So do you worry that the the landscapes of campaigns and elections, the amount of money that's in it has enabled, you know, strategists to micro target voters in such a way that it's fundamentally changed, you know, the elections? Or do you have any concerns yes. for the future of democracy? Oh, I have a hundred. Yeah, I, you're right on target, and, and not just the money part of it. The the way we have, like you said, we way we've divided, and the way we we can spread misinformation just so quickly and so laser targeted. Uh, the manipulation of information, the, the information around we live in. But no, I, I do, I, I, I do, I believe that the way that we've structured our elections that it, it's so far from what the founding fathers had in mind, um, which was anyway because it needed to. <laughs> uh, but. It just it is we're we're getting very close to not really having a representative democracy. I, I I do fear for our democracy. I'm not 
I'm not, I think we, I think we're too, um, there's an element of hubris in the United States that the bad things that happen in Germany, the bad things that happen in our countries will just never happen here. We're, we're too good for it. But I, th- I think this is such a hubristic uh, view. Certainly it can happen. It, it, there's nothing wrong with those other countries that, that somehow they're weaker or less than us. Um, they're all the factors that, that brought down that turned Germany or Italy into fascist states are, could very much occur here. Why not? Why do we think we're special that we're so different? Um, the, let's, you know, one of the things my organization focused on the beer hall project, we call it the beer hall project because of the beer hall push, you know, in, in October, 1923 or April, 1923, um, uh, uh, Munich, you know, Hitler tried to take over the government of Bavaria and then marched to Berlin, modified modeling his friend, uh, Benito Mussolini. Uh, it failed. But what he learned was, well, that wasn't the way to power. He would just manipulate the levers of power of the Weimar Republic. Uh, and take power through the de- de- ostensibly democratic means. Ten years later, Hitler was the chancellor. A month later was the Reichstag fire. A month later was the um, the enabling acts that turned him into a dictator. And we know what happened after that. And so I do believe that this is what we have to remember, is that since January 6th, the Republican Party especially has been doing all they can to roll back voters. You saw it in Texas in the primary. People going to vote, and they weren't even on the rolls anymore. They've been removed. Even though they'd voted in the very last election, they were removed from the rolls for no good reason. Um, all the absentee ballots being rejected, basically. So you're seeing efforts by our opponents to to try and manipulate our electoral process, and, and all that's occurring. Um it's it's scary to me that the that we think that we could not find ourselves in a position of of an autocratic state. Uh, so yeah, I, I spend every day of my life right now focused on that issue of what can we do to stop the march of time. It is it is campaign finance money. It is the gerrymandering. It is the way we've set in stone who everybody is, and we're building districts around always winning those districts. Uh, uh, people giving up entire states. Oh, Missouri is worthless because it's a red state. Well, you know, there's a lot of good people here. <laughs> so, uh, no, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I, I wish I had the answer. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, one of the things my organization is trying to do is answer that question. Well, how do, like, I think there's estimates, Duke, that 27% of Americans are completely politically unengaged. Like, you know, we talk about right, left, independent. I'm talking about the, I don't know what the hell I am people, people who are just not participating in our democratic uh, uh, system. Uh, how do we get tw- those 27% of Americans to understand that even when they're focused on economic issues, uh, an autocracy is not good for the economy? Ask Russia about that today. How's that working out for Russia, right? Um, and so uh, how do we activate them? It's one of the questions I want to answer is how do I reach those people who aren't involved and make sure they're participating in our democratic process before it's too late, before there is no democratic process? Thank you very much, Duke. I think that that is a fantastic note to end on, Fred. Um, So I just want to say that in about a week, we will publish this into a podcast. We will send you the link for some Twitter love, get as many listeners as we can to it. Um, But before we end, I just really quickly, we got like two minutes left. I was wondering if you had any last thoughts. It sounded like uh, that was was some pretty good last thoughts there, but I wanted to Mm. kick it to you just for the final thoughts here. No, thanks. I appreciate it. If people want to follow me on Twitter, it's FP Wellman. Uh, I'm FP Wellman on everything. Um, I do believe that we have the ability to participate in this. I think people ask me all the time, like, what difference can I make, Fred? I'm, you know, vote. I said, well, if you look what's happening, like a lot of these election boards, a good friend of mine just got put on his local election board. It's a nonpartisan thing. But there's a lot of people who, I mean, Trump himself has said that it doesn't matter what the vote is. It matters who counts it, uh, which has been misattributed to Stalin, but it is what it is. Um, 
I think you could participate in our democracy. Show that your city council race. There's been some really crazy stuff happening in those places. Show over your school boards because the the march to that failure that we talked about, Duke, um, the march to the failure of our democracy is at the local level. It really is at the local level. It's it's in your school boards. It's in your city councils. It's in your county councils. It's in the state legislatures. Too many Americans don't even pay attention to those. Um, and then you wake up one day and you've got laws passed like here in Missouri where uh, they passed a Second Amendment law where essentially the police are not allowed to participate in any kind of gun programs. And they <laughs> they inadvertently defunded the state police because they got pulled out of a federal task force that was funding like a third of their money. <laughs> the, the ironic thing here in Missouri is the Republicans have inadvertently defunded the police. Um, if you want to stop those kind of things, it, it really is happening at your local level. I always urge people, if the, if the opportunity presents itself, please participate in your democratic process right in your own backyard. You don't have to send a lot of money. You just have to show up sometimes. So that's the big thing I tell everybody is, you know, get involved before it's too late. That's all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Fred Wellman, to our audience for their questions, and to you for being here. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information about how to join us, past episodes, and more, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode on Monday featuring Olga Lautman, who's a researcher on corruption in Russia and Ukraine, as well as global organized crime. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.